that they should keep his good commandments, not like their fathers were, who with undevoted heart were unfaithful to their God. We read that in our text for this morning, which is Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. If you'll turn with me there, Exodus 17, 1 through 7. In your pew Bibles, you can find that on page 69 through 60 through 70. Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord and receive it as such. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, and camped, um, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore... The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there, On the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So far, the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Seems like quite a bit of a basic question, isn't it? Who is the Lord? It's a question we should ask ourselves all the time. Who is the Lord? Is this, this isn't just a question for non-Christians. This isn't a question just for our young people and our children growing up. This is a question for us, professed believers, office bearers of this church, for ministers, for professors of theology. Who is the Lord? We should ask ourselves this question. Not because we've somehow forgotten, as though we wake up one morning and say, yeah, I forgot everything I know about the Lord. Who is the Lord? No. Ask ourselves this question every day because it deals with the deepest parts of our hearts. Who do we believe the Lord to be? Truly believe the Lord to be. Is the Lord faithful? Is the Lord forgiving? Is he actually merciful? 
Is he a harsh taskmaster? We can believe these things implicitly. We can get that idea in our hearts if they're not in our minds. And of course, you can see the consequences of believing that. If the Lord is a harsh taskmaster, if he's a bad father, an unforgiving father, a merciless father, what business would we have coming to him for repentance and forgiveness? If he's faithless, why would we ever bother coming to him in prayer? And why would we base our entire lives on this book, the Scriptures? Who is the Lord? The book of Exodus asks this question all throughout. It first brings up the question when it describes the oppression of God's people under Egypt, under the Egyptian power. The people cry out to the God of their ancestors. And unknown to them, the Lord actually responds. He calls Moses to himself through providence into the wilderness and there speaks to Moses from the burning bush. And we're familiar with the story. The Lord says, I am who I am. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. In other words, though Israel, and you can look in the book of Genesis, these men... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did use the name the Lord, all capital letters, O-L-R-D. They didn't understand the true meaning of that name. But now, in the Exodus, through Moses, that name used before without knowledge will now be filled out for God's people. I am who I am. In other words, I am who you're going to see I am. I am what my works show who I am. Who am I, says the Lord? You'll see in the Exodus with what I'm about to do. And what has the Lord done so far in our text? Well, through Moses, he's broken the power of Egypt. He's killed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. He's brought them through dry ground. He's miraculously provided for them. Who is the Lord? This Lord. The Lord who is bringing them to his presence. Who is the Lord? Is he like Pharaoh? Is he faithful? Is he trustworthy? Very practical questions Israel would be asking themselves as they walk now with this covenant God. Very practical questions that we might ask ourselves and we should ask ourselves. Who is the Lord? So, beloved congregation, as we look at our passage today, we look at it with this big question in mind, looking at this theme. The Lord provides for an unworthy people. And we look at it in two parts. First, Israel forgets the Lord, which describes us and who we are. And second, the Lord remembers Israel, where we see who the Lord is. And so up until this point in the book of Exodus, God has been delivering Israel. God has promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15 that though his descendants would be slaves in the land of Egypt, the Lord would come to rescue them. And now he's acting. He sent Moses. He sent the plagues. He's broken Pharaoh's back, so to say. And he's done it. And now he's moving them to Sinai. And that's important. Because all the way back in the Garden of Eden, God's people were in his presence. Adam and Eve, they walked with the Lord. 
in the garden, in the cool of the day. Now he's bringing them to Sinai, a redeemed, restored people of God, to a place where the Lord will make a covenant vow to him that he will dwell with them. The book of Leviticus, it's always a difficult book. This is its basic message. The Lord will dwell with his people. That's what the laws are about. That's what the purity laws are about. That's what the tabernacle instructions are all about. The Lord will dwell with his people. And at Sinai, this new stage, when Israel will be a treasured possession among the people as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that takes a new step. The Lord, so to say, marries his people. And of course, now as New Testament Christians in this new era of the covenant of grace, that's embraced all the more. And we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth when that idea, the Lord with his people, takes a final stage when we will be with the Lord in truth and in fact, not seen with the eyes of faith, but seen with our eyes. And so at, our, at present in our text, we find ourselves in Exodus, the Lord is moving his people to Sinai for this new step, but there's a pause. There's a pause in the narrative. In Exodus 14, they cross the Red Sea. In Exodus 15, Moses sings his beautiful song about the Lord's salvation. And at Exodus 19, they actually get to Sinai. But there's a few chapters. See, the Lord brings his people through the desert. They they don't so much wander through the desert as are guided by the Lord's presence. Remember, the clouds of smoke, of, of clouds by day, clouds, a pillar, a fire by night. The Lord walks with his people to Sinai. And in the course of that, the book of Exodus reveals that he's testing the people of God. He's testing them. First, he tests them at the end of Exodus 15. The Lord leads his people through the wilderness of Shur for three days without water and brings them to Marah, which was called Marah because the word means bitter, because there was bitter water there. The Lord tests his people to see if they'll obey him, if they'll trust him as God who has just rescued them. Who is the Lord? The people do not. They doubt, they grumble, they complain, and so they fail. The Lord provides for them miraculously cleansing the water and then brings them to Elam, closer to Sinai one more step, but with one mark against them. Second, In Exodus 16, the Lord brings them to the wilderness of sin, one step closer again to Sinai, but not there yet. And now there's no food. The people grumble like before, but the Lord promises that he will provide manna from heaven for six six days in the week, but the seventh, do not gather. Trust. Believe that what you've gathered is enough. Gather twice. You will be provided for. It's a test. Will you obey my commandments? Deeper than that, will you trust me? Who do you believe that I am? If you remember the story, Israel fails. Some people go out on the Sabbath to gather. But the Lord continues to be faithful. So now two marks against Israel. And so now we find ourselves in our text, the third test. At least two basic things have been shown previous in the book of Exodus about who Israel is as a people. These are the two ideas. First, they're fundamentally an unbelieving nation. They don't take God at his word. They don't. And secondly, not only are they unbelieving, but they're a forgetful people. So you can prove something to someone by showing them. 
You can prove that you own something by showing the receipts, so to say. Israel has forgotten the receipts. Think about what Israel was like at this point. It was a congregation, a single church out in the wilderness. Every day, the Lord's presence was completely obvious. Bread from heaven. The angels of the Lord, all amongst the people of God. The Lord was in the midst of his people. Absolutely undeniable. Yet, the people forget who the Lord is. Who is the Lord? They don't believe the Lord's word. And they forget his wonderful works. So in our passage, without belaboring it, this really shows how deep this rebellious heart goes for Israel. In verse 2 it says, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Keep those two words in mind, quarrel and test. The word quarrel in Hebrew is a legal term. It's not just why are you bickering with me? Why are you accusing me? A formal accusation, a complaint. A lawsuit, we might say, in our contemporary context. Why are you suing God? And not only that, why are you testing the Lord? How dare you, Israel? The Lord is testing you, and you test the Lord, and you bring an accusation against him, a quarreling, a formal complaint. They accuse the Lord of faithlessness. They accuse Moses of treason, of not having the nation's best interests in heart. Have you brought us out just to kill us? And in the Hebrew, it's even more vivid. Have you brought me out? It describes what everyone is saying. Have you brought me out to kill me and my children and my livestock? Everything. That's where the mindset of the people of God is. It was lying in the people's heart from the very beginning. Uh, thirst is brought to the surface. And so this lawsuit makes sense of what the people try to do. They try to go and stone Moses, which later on, that's what the law will say, you do for traitors. The people attempt to remove God from their lives. All because they stumbled at this point. Is the Lord among us or not? Now again, think of Israel's situation. Is the Lord among us? That question isn't being asked as though, quite literally, is the Lord in our presence or not? Very obviously so. The question is this, is the Lord among us for our good or not? Is the Lord in our lives, is the Lord leading us into good paths or in bad? Who is the Lord? As we read this, we should think about the Garden of Eden. Because the Garden of Eden matches this so very closely. Back then the Lord tested his chosen people, he tested Adam. He put forward a command and promises to his people that he will bless them if they keep it. If they trust him, he will dwell with Adam. And just like Adam, they failed to believe the Lord. Just like Adam, they've elected to forget what the Lord is like. Who is the Lord? Fundamentally, that's the question Satan asked Adam all the way back in the beginning. Can you really trust God? Does he have your best intentions at heart? Why would he deny you this fruit that will make you to be like God? He made you in his image. Does he want you to be like God? Who is the Lord? 
Adam knew the answer to the question. He knew who God was like. He walked with God in the cool of the day. But like Israel, he elected to forget. And just like Adam was unworthy to remain in the garden, you would think that Israel's unworthy to continue walking with the Lord. Three strikes. This is the third. And they're out. What we really need to see from this passage is fundamentally the people of God are unworthy of this covenant. The Lord's mission, established all the way from the beginning. What the Lord is doing with them now, bringing them to Sinai, where he is to marry them to himself. They're not worthy of that. They've cheated on their God. Should the Lord take them to the altar? At Sinai, the Lord will bind himself to the people with covenant obligations. Are the people worthy of being his chosen people? Are the people worthy of having the tabernacle? Of being the kingdom of priests? Of being his special possession? What's your judgment? As you make your judgment, congregation, see Israel, think about yourself. Because in Israel, we see ourselves. This event left deep scars on Israel, and later on, biblical writers would reflect back on it in the Psalms and elsewhere, and they would use it as an example of what lies in the hearts of God's people, deep down. In our call to worship from Psalm 95, there's a second half that's not very often read, and it goes this way. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. The same event. Even in the New Testament, Hebrews 3, it uses that exact same Psalms to warn us, New Testament believers, like Israel, we too stand to inherit a promised land, and we too must inherit it by faith in the promise. Hebrews 3 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all who left Egypt, led by Moses? So we are not at all that different from the people in our text. We're all all that different from Adam in that way. Like Adam, we are asked this question every day in trials Who is the Lord? A car accident where we don't know if we can pay for our vehicle to get it repaired. Insurance won't cover it. We are tested. Who is the Lord? Will we trust? Difficult financial situations where we might be tempted to cut corners or to do shifty things. We are tested. Who is the Lord? As our marriages struggle to be godly, or to be peaceful. We are tested. Who is the Lord? Congregation, we need to see from our passage as we go into our second point that fundamentally, like Israel, we're also unworthy of the Lord. Because when we look deep down into our hearts, we see that we as well are fundamentally slow to believe and extremely forgetful people. The Lord has showered his mercies on us every morning. And yet in trials, has it not been in our own lives that we so quickly forget who the Lord is and what he's done for us? 
How quickly do we forget our baptisms? How quickly do we forget the last time we took the Lord's Supper? Fundamentally, we are unworthy. Who is the Lord? We see that in our second point. God remembers Israel. The Lord responds to Israel. Moses prays to the Lord. He's uncertain of what to do with people. He's been appointed by the Lord to be the mediator of this covenant, to be the shepherd of Israel, their chief pastor, you might say. And now the people want to throw him out. So he goes in prayer. And he prays to the Lord and asks. He seeks the divine response. Lord, I do not know what to do with these people. What's right? Three strikes. These people are unworthy. I don't know what to do with them anymore. What is your will, O God? That's another way to ask the question. Who are you? Are you going to stand for this? Are you going to tolerate this? What's the divine response? The Lord doesn't smite this forgetful people and doubting people. The Lord doesn't say to them, all right, test failed. Now you're all going to die. Like later, open up the earth, and now they fall into hell, so to say. I'm done with you. He doesn't say that. He responds with gentleness, kindness. Do you notice that in our text? Gentleness and kindness. He responds to an ungrateful and forgetful people by passing over their sins and recommitting again to what his mission is, bringing them to Sinai, where he will dwell with his people. And ultimately, as we experience now, bringing them to the new heavens and the new earth, that future promise, that thread throughout all of Scripture, the Lord recommits to that. The Lord of the covenant sends the mediator of the covenant back to his people, not to destroy them, but to bless them once again. Look at verses 5 to 6. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff, with which you struck the Nile, and go, behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now this isn't what the nation deserves. They deserve to be struck, like the rock is. But instead another is struck, and waters come out of it. For the people, the Lord commands Moses to gather the elders of Israel to come and be a witness. The people won't forget. Here are the witnesses. And he used to take the same staff he used so recently in all the miracles in Egypt, and he's to use it again. The Lord shows himself, congregation, to Israel again. That's how the Lord treats his people. He once again reveals who he is. The answer to their doubt, the answer to their forgetfulness, the answer to their unworthiness is a manifestation of who the Lord truly is. To fill out the name again, the Lord. Who is the Lord? This shows us. And it shows us three things about the Lord. First, it shows that the Lord is patient. Again, this is the third time the people have rebelled against him. Yet for the third time, provides for him. He knows his people. Have you ever thought about that congregation? The Lord knows you. 
The Bible makes it very clear. He knows that we are but dust. He knows our frame. He knows that we are sinners, sons of Adam. He's not shocked that his people are fallen creatures. He's not shocked that they're slow to understand. But as a patient father, he teaches them. He forgives their insolence, the rebellion. He cares for them. He is patient. He provides just what they need, just as he did before, and just like he will afterward. Second, the Lord's response also shows that the Lord forgives freely. God forgives his people time and time again. This is happening, by the way, before Sinai, as we've said. Israel is an unworthy nation. The Lord recommits to his mission. He's going to bring the people to Sinai. He's not going to allow their infidelity to stop the marriage that he has planned for him. What kind of God is like this? In the book of Hosea, in the Old Testament, Hosea was given, as a prophet, he was to be a model for the relationship between God and his people. If you remember, God told Hosea, go and get you a wife, a wife of whoredom. Get a prostitute. Marry her. Why? Because that's what I've done with your people. The Lord does this. He takes sinners like you and I. He takes people that are forgetful and slow to believe and understand. And he forgives them. He predestined this nation. He knew full well that this is the way they were going to be. The Lord forgives them. The the covenant of grace that the Lord is going to once again announce at Sinai is built on, found, uh, built on forgiveness. It's not an additive. It's not an extra spice that goes into this mix. It's the base of it. The basic assumption of this relationship that we have with our covenant God. Third and perhaps the most important thing we see about our covenant Lord is that the Lord is faithful. He is consistent. He never changes. This is why he chooses to use a covenant, because he will never break it. The Lord does not change. Therefore, we are not consumed, says the prophets. There's no shadow or variation of changing with the Lord. He gives his good gifts to us liberally and freely and always is willing to receive his wayward children back. His arms don't close. His door doesn't slam shut. It is always open for his people. When he took us, he forgave us. And as we walk with him, he forgives us. Congregation, who is the Lord? This is the Lord. The Lord treats you this way. The Lord forgives your sin. He covers them. Treats you with covenant faithfulness. We need to grab a hold of this. We need to use this as an antidote in times of trials and times of doubt. Who is the Lord? This text shows us who is the Lord. That question, who is the Lord, it has a final and absolute answer to it. Our Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament makes it clear that whoever sees the Son has seen the Father. And the book of Hebrews says that he is the express image of the Father, the glorious of his radiance. Whoever has seen the Father, 
Whoever has seen the Son has seen the Father. He is the exact imprint of His nature. As we said before, the way the Lord addresses His people's doubts, the way He addresses their forgetfulness, their unworthiness, is by an expression of who He is as a, as a God. A revelation. In Jesus Christ, there is a perfect revelation given of the Father, and of course of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The whole of God's character is shown in Jesus Christ. And we see him in our passage. We see him in Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, Christ is the better and new Moses, who likewise leads his people through wilderness, who likewise opens up a rock of salvation for them. See, here a rock is struck. In the new covenant, Christ himself is struck and water comes out from his side. Waters of eternal life. In the new covenant, a perfect mediator is sent out to the people to show them who the Father is. Is the Lord among us? Well, that that is a very different answer now in the new covenant. Of course, yes, he dwells in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Who is the Lord? That answer is given completely in our Lord Jesus Christ. Israel in our passage is marching on to Sinai and the Lord is among them. This was by shadow. This was in a small way. So much more for us now in the new covenant where we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts and in our midst as a congregation. This is really our only comfort in life and in death. That we belong to God our Lord Jesus Christ, who is exactly who this passage shows him to be. Gentle, forgiving, patient, faithful. Turning to our original question, who is the Lord? He's patient. He's gentle. He's the faithful God who sent our Lord Jesus Christ so that we would have a true communion with the Lord. Who are we? Forgetful untrusting so often, fundamentally unworthy of this Lord Jesus Christ. But again, who is the Lord? This Lord. The Lord who passes over transgressions, who is pleased to dwell with his people. The Lord who is bringing his people to a greater communion with himself in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness and holiness dwells. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so congregation, as we go into a new week, we go into a week where there will be trials, where there will be difficulties, where we will be tested in our marriages, in our parenting, with our parents, at work, wherever. We will be tested. Trials will come, we're promised. Who is your Lord in the midst of trials? Who is your Lord in the midst of difficulties? Who is the rock upon which you stand, the rock of refuge in which is your help? The Lord. The God who is near at hand to bless at all times. The Lord we have seen in our passage. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Sovereign, holy Lord, who has revealed himself as the God of all patience, love, gentleness, kindness to his people. Lord, how often are we forgetful? How often, Lord, do we not trust you or take you at your word? But Lord, we need you. We need you as you are. Our faithful covenant God who will never abandon us nor forsake us. A God in whom we can trust. A God in whom we can rest. And so, Lord, we pray. 
apply the truths of your word to our lives so that, Lord, we may be refreshed in our spirits, so that, Lord, we may stand in the time of trial, and that, Lord, we would be brought to the new heavens and the new earth by you, our covenant God, the new and better Sinai, where righteousness and holiness dwells. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.